what's next? When you're done with one thing, it's time to start the next thing. January 5th, 2022. The inspiration. Moving on. When I ask what's next, it means I'm ready to move on to other things. So what's next? Jed Bartlett in The Shadow of Two Gunmen, Part 1, The West Wing. We spend a lot of our time making things, talking about making things, figuring out how to get better at making things, and getting better at letting the things we make be good enough. But what do we do when the thing is done? We move on. What's next? The Fat Orange Cat. Done. Your character is done. Done making dinner. Done with the relationship they're in. Done taking anyone's shit. Done being shitty to others. Done smoking. Done drinking. Let them be done. And see what happens next. The trope. The finale. In series-based stories, we have finales. For seasons. For entire series, eventually they come to an end. Usually with a big flourish that ends the story and tells us what it all means. If they stick the landing. Which, let's face it, sometimes they don't. And no flag on the play. Finishing a regular one-moment-in-time story is hard enough. Finishing a season? A series? A thing that is not only telling a story, but employing hundreds of people and under the pressing thumb of whatever media monolith is paying for said hundreds of people. Honestly, it's amazing that any series ever has a great finale. So rather than complain when a finale falls apart, let's take a moment to celebrate those miracles when a finale actually works and leaves us feeling satisfied with a story well told and well ended. Off the top of my head, I can think of only three. Buffy, The Good Place, and Breaking Bad. Which ones am I missing? The question, now what? I just finished a book and I don't know what to do next. Do I rest? Do I start the next book? Should I revise? Now what? Dear now what? What you do now is not an easy question to answer. If the book you just finished was only a first draft, you do not revise now. You put it away for six weeks at least and try to think about it as little as possible so that when you come back to it, you'll have the distance you need to experience it as a reader, not a writer. Not thinking about it for weeks is a tall order, though. So starting the next book, giving yourself something else creative to think about can definitely help. But also, after finishing up something huge like a book, congratulations, by the way, you may need some time to crash and rest. Doing things that are not writing might be the order of the day for a while. Engage in other hobbies. Go away for a weekend. Work on yoga or meditation. Do something restorative, depending on what restorative means for you. When it comes down to it, only you can answer the question of what's next. Write down all your options on a piece of paper, close your eyes, and sit with it for a bit. The answer will come to you. That works for a lot of things, actually. The Practical. Our Precious Stories. This was the first Christmas I've had without kids for 22 years. Kind of crazy. So when Ian looked at me and said, what are we going to do for Christmas? I said, nothing. So that's what we did. And writer, it was glorious. We each chose the most important television shows from our respective childhoods, Star Trek The Next Generation for him, Moonlighting for me, and we traded an episode of each. And it's been incredible for a lot of reasons. 
One, it's a great new way to get to know your beloved. To engage in a story world that is precious to them is a fascinating exercise, especially because some of the things that were precious in our childhood can sometimes not age so well. He and I would trade off apologizing for the things in our stories that were clearly broken and then get to the parts we loved and enjoy sharing them with each other. So as a relationship exercise, highly recommended. But also it was fun to mix and match, to go back and forth, to finish one and find yourself starting to crave the other. I watched The Next Generation a bit when I was in college, but I don't remember much of it at all. But going back through it, some of the episodes are really great, and there's nothing like good sci-fi to launch fascinating philosophical discussions. Ian had never watched Moonlighting, but I reference it so much that it helps for him to have context. And where The Next Generation can sometimes be very deep, Moonlighting is fast and funny and terrible in a lot of highly entertaining ways. They complement each other oddly well, kind of like me and Ian. We already have our next selections ready, so when one runs out, we each populate our playlist with the next, alternating back and forth. It's going to be years before we run out. What are your precious stories? Semantic Satiation I have a plan. January 8th, 2022 Content warning, emotional abuse, sexual assault. Dear writer, in the Ted Lasso episode Two Aces, season one, episode six, there's a reference to the phenomenon of semantic satiation. When you repeat a word so many times, it ceases to have meaning or even seem familiar anymore. Jamie's contract is owned by Manchester City and they in turn loaned him to Richmond for the season. Oh, okay, I get it. They want Jamie back if you are planning to bench him. I'm not planning on that. No, my plan is for my plan to work. But you know what they say about the best laid plans, right? Hmm, said plan too many times. Words lost all its meaning now. Plan, plan, plan. Hey, you tell Man City that this man has a plan. Plan, plan, plan. I've experienced semantic satiation a number of times in my life, but my knowledge of it as a phenomenon went unnamed, an experience I would have in a moment, but never consciously think about. When I saw that episode of Ted Lasso, though, it felt so satisfying, like a puzzle piece falling into place. Semantic satiation. Perfect. We're moving to Colorado. I've been thinking about conscious and subconscious knowledge a lot lately because therapy. I visualize it in terms of water. There's below the surface and above the surface. I have a lot of knowledge, things that are true, and beliefs, things that may or may not be true, but I live my life as though they are true, that are under the surface. And part of my therapy process is putting out the fishing line, waiting for something to tug at it, and then pull it up painstakingly to the surface, trying not to lose it, although I often do. If I can get it to the surface, I can drag it out and look at it in the light of day. When it's below the surface, as it gets closer, I can see it, get a sense of the shape, but the water distorts the light and the shape and the colors. I can't get a good look. I can't wrap my mind around what it really is until it's above the surface. I will be leaving this house in a matter of weeks. Naming semantic satiation brought that concept, which had been knocking around in my subconscious as an unexamined experience for years, above the surface. I didn't have to fish for it or pull it up the way that I do the big fishes, the ones weighted down by trauma and emotional issues. Someone else can pull a concept like semantic satiation up above the water and boom, suddenly knowledge I had that I didn't know I had has a name and a place in my world. I understand it. Soon, I'm going to turn my back on this house for the very last time. 
In just a few weeks, I will never again have to sit and watch movies in the living room where I was date raped by a friend I'd invited over for dinner. In just a few weeks, I will never again have to sleep in the bedroom where my husband oddly put his hand over my throat and squeezed, sending me flying out into a dissociated haze where I wondered casually if he was going to kill me. We've been talking about making the move for a while, but now we have a solid plan and we're really going to do it. I'm excited about going to Colorado. I have no problem wrapping my mind around the realities of that, and I absolutely can't wait. But turning my back on this place, leaving it forever, doesn't feel real. Plan or no plan, I can't really imagine it. Plan. 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 My fear, of course, is that I will never leave, even after I leave. You know what I mean? That a place so marked by intense trauma will imprint itself upon my psyche and go with me wherever I go. That I will still wake up in this bedroom, even when I'm 1,500 miles away. That I will still flash back to that living room couch when I'm on another couch in another living room in another state. Location-sourced flashbacks have been a daily reality for me for a long time. I don't fear those flashbacks because I know they'll happen. Now that leaving is reality, I'm suddenly afraid because leaving spawns hope and with hope comes fear. What if I just take it all with me? What if I can never, ever really leave? It's like waiting for blood test results to find out if I'm in the clear or not. Some of the trauma absolutely will stay with me. It would be naive to think otherwise. I will never be a person this didn't happen to. But will I be a person who doesn't have daily flashbacks? Maybe. I've pulled these experiences out of the water and examined them to death for years because therapy. I throw them back into the water each time, but they keep bobbing to the surface. Very soon, some of the buoys that keep them so close to the surface of the water will be cut. At that point, I'll find out if they can sink into the inky depths at the bottom, always there, but maybe less of a daily pain in the fucking ass. Someday, in the next six to eight weeks... I'm going to get into my car and back out of this driveway for the last time. I can't imagine it, but I know I will do it. Because, baby, I have a plan. 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 God damn it. Everything. Elle. 